Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So chapter 6, learning my gospel story by which God gives meaning uh, to my experience. Now, I want to caution us here. This is not where we answer the why question. Uh, It is is processing hard emotions within a redemptive story. Um, uh, And what we want to do here is give us the right story out of which we're going to live out the practical directives we're about to get to. Now, an athlete can train for good reasons or bad. Uh, An athlete can train because they want revenge. Somebody did them wrong, somebody beat them last time, and their motivation for training is revenge. And that is, in some ways, just as effective in terms of an internal drive, as the athlete who's motivated to maximize the abilities that they've been given. And candidly, I think there's a sense where we can, out of lots of different stories, be motivated to overcome depression and anxiety. I just think uh, the Gospel gives us the healthiest story uh, out of which to process those emotions. And that's what I want us to begin to see. Uh, We will do that by looking at six questions. Um, But before we go into that, I think uh, Lee Ross gives us maybe an appropriate caution here uh, about what we're not doing. It says, optimism is not about providing a recipe for self-deception. This is not where we put on our happy, happy rose-colored glasses. Um, The world can be a horrible, cruel place and at the same time be a wonderful and abundant Uh, These are both truths. Uh, There is not a halfway point. There is only choosing which truth to put in your personal foreground. So again, we're not saying the suffering stories are altogether false. We're just saying these are the stories, these are the aspects of narrative that we will be fighting to keep at the foreground uh, as we grapple with some of the things that we've talked about. And so the first question uh, is, who am I? Who am I now? At this point in the journey, how should I understand myself? I would think, give you three things that I think would be beneficial. One is, I'm strong enough to be weak. I can tell you that statement was the most beneficial thing uh, that I ever came to grips with for my marriage. When I thought being a Christian leader of my family, who being the head of my household, like Christ is the head of the church, meant I always had to be strong. It meant I had to be some kind of type A, lion D leader. And that just wasn't me. And I knew I didn't always have it together. It led to a lot of fear that resulted in fakeness. And when I realized that the gospel allowed me to be strong enough to be weak. 
And I could be much more authentic and real and the kind of relationship that was shared was just much more authentic. It did a lot. Loved enough to be vulnerable. Again, same kind of thing. Uh, that in the context that God is not going to be offended if I come to Him and say, I'm hurting. You know, one of the things that we often miss is that in the Psalms, kind of the hymn book of the Bible, there are more psalms of lament and despair than there are psalms of praise. That there are more psalms in the minor key than there are in the major key. Because God says, come to me with your sorrows. This is going to be part of your journey. Don't hide that part of your life from me. I am able enough to be passionate. You know, sometimes we think as if depression and anxiety were a handicap and we would never be able to do anything significant or meaningful until we put it behind us. Uh, God can't use us as long as we struggle in this way. That's simply not true. So many great figures in Scripture struggle with depression and anxiety. Elijah, David, Paul was despairing to the point of life. Jesus in Gethsemane. Um, yet, um, we are, even in the midst of this experience, able enough to be uh, passionate. We have God questions. Who and where is God? God is near to those who are anxious and depressed. I think one of the things that we miss in some of the classic anxiety passages, passages like, First, uh, Philippians 4 and 1 Peter 3, uh, where we get that kind of be anxious for nothing and cast all of your anxieties upon Him. Um, in those kinds of passages, one of the phrases that is in every one of those that I can just say personally, I didn't, I didn't ever hear, is the way that God goes out of His way to remind us He is near. He is with us. Go back and read those passages and see it. Too often, we come to Scripture as if all we wanted was principles. Principles of how to live better. And it's as if God just wrote us a letter. And you know what a letter means? A letter means two things. A letter means somebody cares and they're far away. And when God gave the Scripture, He wanted to make sure that the second message wasn't part of the first. And so every time He speaks to this struggle, there is that repeated emphasis that He is near. And I think He's more than near in the sense of just being next to. He is inside of our experience of depression and anxiety. When you read Romans 8, and you get into verse 26... And it talks about that he that the Spirit speaks to God our experiences of suffering with groanings that are too deep for words. It is as if the Holy Spirit is surfing on the emotions of our soul, translating them to God Himself. In our moments of silence and isolation, not even our silence can be silent before God. It is known in a way that is beyond factual knowledge. It is known in the way as one who weeps with those who weeps. 
one who is moved with us when we are moved. And that's what lets us know that the isolation of our depression and anxiety is a lie. It's not true. He can sympathize with the realness of our experience. We have a high priest who is attempted in every way that we are. He is the one who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that experience and it is real. But because of what he did, we do not have to live with it as if it were true. Yet it is, does not lack the compassion of one who can sympathize in every way. And he is capable of transforming suffering. It doesn't mean he eliminates it. But it does mean he is able to do things with it in our lives and in the lives of others. Uh, that, that we can look at and say, those things are good. The experience itself, it was suffering. It was bad. I'm not calling that good. Uh, but what he did with it was. Again, uh, I think Catherine Green McCreed helps us see some of this. She says, for the Christian who believes in the crucified and risen Messiah, suffering always is meaningful. It is meaningful because of the one whose suffering we participate in. Jesus, the personal suffering of the Christian finds a correlation in Christ's suffering, which gathers up our tears, calms our sorrows, and points us towards His resurrection. Uh, Ed Welch, um, speaking uh, on the same thing differently, says, hope is the opposite of fear. Hope is a prediction that God will be good. Be strong and courageous. A phrase like that just dangling out there on its own, it doesn't work. You can't simply command a frightened person to be strong and courageous and expect them to do it. Don't be scared. Stand up straight. Look them in the eye. What makes a command work is this part. God will be with you wherever you go. Again, in my coaching vernacular, uh, as I'm there with my kids and I'm getting ready for them to go out, one of my strategies is I want them to trust me more than they fear the moment. I want us to do things and practice, have all the rah-rah so that it feels like all the Super Bowl with none of the pressure, so that when we go out on the field, their sense of trust in me as coach. And if coach is here, we got this. Because he talks fast and says a lot and we don't know what he's saying, but we believe in him. <laughs> but I want them to trust me more than they fear the moment. And it is that sense of presence. It's not, guys, you got this, you worked hard, get out there. Be strong. You got this. It is that sense of, I will be with you. We are doing this together. Uh, that wells up a sense of courage. And that is the message of Scripture. Um, yet, another question in terms of that story. What should I expect from my friends? Um, presence more than deliverance. Um, you know, sometimes when in Christian circles, I almost hear us talk about community as if it's the fourth member of the Trinity. As if it was going to do everything. Um, 
what, what a friend can do is help us not be alone in that experience, even if it doesn't totally transform the experience. It's a form of two-way love and service. The best involvement of a friend in the midst of depression and anxiety may be giving you somebody else to think about and care about to help you get outside of yourself. Uh, and it may be a call to engage in common pleasures. You know, friends are a great excuse to enjoy life. When I am trapped inside of myself and I think I've got so much to do and I can't get it all done and my nose is the grind and I'm starting to get kind of despairing and life is losing all of its color and it's just becoming this drab black and white movie. Um, when some of the guys here on staff say, hey, you want to be in a fantasy football league with us and we just kind of do some of that bantering kind of thing that goes on? That is good for my soul. Because it is just a reason to engage with some of the pleasures of life again. You know, what is sin and what is suffering? It's never going to be as neat as we want it to be. And I think part of what we do is we just rest in God's patience until we figure it out. There's this sense that God is not pressuring us to get it right as if we're going to take a moral theological quiz and we've got to get it... No! God is saying, you know, part of our journey is you figuring out what things you're responsible for, what things that your beliefs and values and behaviors impact and what things they don't. And I'm willing to take that journey with you. And we need to stay humble as we make those distinctions. Because they may change with time. The way that I like to think about it um, is um, there's been a couple of times in my life when I've gone through a significant medical procedure. And what things were wise and what things were excessive after a surgery, I kind of progressed over time. You know, in those first couple of days or weeks, they say don't pick up anything over five pounds. Uh, and then there's kind of, okay, there's an aspect as we are coming to full strength in seasons where certain things that, that we do need to own and take responsibility for and where we're at in that, in that process, in that journey, will help us see it. And so let's stay humble as we try to figure that out. Is hope worth disappointment? Yes. And I think this is such a huge question. Because too often, uh, we know the proverb, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we know the answer. Don't hope. You think, if I'm going to fall down, let's stay low so I don't fall from a very high height and I won't get hurt as bad. You know, if you're going to fall down, don't climb stairs. And that becomes our mentality towards life. And when it comes to the way that the gospel gives us a story that stays at the forefront, is hope worth disappointment? Yes. Leslie Vernick says, when we let go of our internal stories and unrealistic expectations about how things should go, we will experience life's disappointments in a more peaceful way. In other words... Choppy waves on the surface of the ocean don't necessarily disturb the calm down below. You know, one of the things that we're after is that we can be sad and not get stuck. That we can be afraid and not freeze. We're not going to do life perfectly. As Christians, when we study the Bible, there's a doctrine that we all believe in. It's called progressive sanctification. 
It means God makes us into His likeness over the course of our entire life. That's the way He designed it. That means we're not there right now. And there is something that He values in walking that journey with us that is better than Him beaming us up, Scotty. And as a parent, I kind of get it. There's something that I love about taking that journey of maturation with my children and the kind of bond and trust and memories and story that it builds. I wouldn't trade for the world. I don't want to zap them to a certain point of life of productivity. I want to walk that journey with them. Another question. What am I living for? In here, purpose more than relief. And this is where I want you to grasp once again. We could have a good day and depression and anxiety still be present. There have been numerous days in my life when I have been stressed and I have shared sweet moments with my wife and with my kids where I have learned something that has been valuable for me for many days going forward. When I've been able to serve somebody else and got a sense of gratification out of it. And and too often, when depression and anxiety becomes that forefront theme and it becomes the story that moves everything else to the background, none of these things matter. And if I feel this way, then it's a bad day and it's a total failure. I wouldn't grade anybody else that way. I do me. And when I can get to the point where I can see, I'm, it's not that I don't want relief, I do. I'm not sadistic. I'm not going, bring on the depression and anxiety. I just want to be to the point where I can say, you know what, I can experience this on a given day. And there are multiple other factors in my life that I could say, this was a satisfying day. It was good. I can rejoice and give thanks for today, even though it had some rotten spots in it. Now, um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just kind of summarizing what we do with these themes. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You know, when we ask, which stories do we tell most naturally? Do we tell step four stories naturally or step six? I can tell you, the gravity of my heart goes step four. And if I just listen to myself, I'm going to tell myself step four stories. That's going to be the narrative that encapsulates my life. He says, you must take yourself in hand. You must address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. Question yourself. Then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who He is, what God is, what God has done, what God has pledged Himself to do. This is not silencing yourself. This is not berating yourself. This is helping yourself see the difference between what is real and what is true. Again, those experiences that are hard, God says you don't have to dismiss them. You don't have to pretend that they don't exist. Those things are real. And it is right to be sad. And I've given you lots of psalms that give you words to speak these things back to me because I'm not allergic to hearing it. 
God's not going, na, 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 pray happy. Come back and say something when you can be nice. Uh, I go to the thumper school of prayer. If you can't say, pray something nice, don't pray anything at all. It's not who God is. But he says, as you talk to me about these things that are real, don't let their realness distract you from what is true, that greater story that exists, because that's the point where it becomes toxic for your soul. And I want to protect you from those things. 